Ooh, welcome back. So I, had a, I thought a good talk that last segment. There was someone that was waiting the line that dropped off, but we can talk about this some more if you want. It's Friday. Things are a little bit more flexible, but if you uh, want to move on, we can do that too. I'm Ryan Recker filling in, and you can reach the same number, same uh, time, but just different person, ryanrecker.com if you want to look me up there. 716-803-0930 is the number. WKBW did a story about how some streets are being reformed to make it more friendly for bike lanes. Can I just throw this out here? Bicycle riders in cities that ride in the street are always more dangerous than the car drivers. And that's saying a lot. Let me just point this out. Every day when I would drive into work, I would see someone break a traffic law. Anytime I've seen someone on a bicycle, they're always breaking traffic law. They don't stop for stop signs. They don't stop for lights. They don't stop for anything. In fact, the only difference between a house cat and a bike rider is that most people like house cats. (laughs) But if you think about it, they are kind of like cats in a way. They act like they own the place. They feel like rules don't apply to them. They get fussy really easy. And I'm offending a lot of bike riders right now. But I hate when cities put in special bike lanes and take up parts of the road for it. It always makes things harder to follow. It always makes things more dangerous in the end. Because now you're trying to keep an eye out for two or three things. And you know the person on a bicycle is going to either cut in front of you, blow past a light, blow past a stop sign, and just make things a lot worse for you, too. Now you're going to have to just deal with that forever because the cities find it as a very trendy thing. It's like, oh, we need to attract the young people, the young millennials, the next generation. They want to bike to work. They want to buy electric vehicles, and if they can't afford an electric vehicle, they're going to bicycle to work to try to save some money. I'm not quite buying it myself. Over there, there's some new bike lanes that were put in. This is over on Forest Avenue in Buffalo. You may be familiar with that situation. But I hate these things. Anywhere they put them in, it's always a menace. It's always just a pain in the butt. And I'm sure you agree with me on this one. But I will say this. I'll put a little caveat onto it. Let's say I was close enough to walk to work. I'd probably walk to work. I wouldn't drive. If I was close enough to bike to work, I don't know if I would do it. It might be tempting It might be tempting just to think that I wouldn't have to drive, wouldn't have to pay gas, you know, maybe get a little bit of exercise. But do my coworkers really want me showing up to work sweaty? Like, I'll I'll have pit stains, and I'll smell, and, you know, my undergarments will be sweaty, and I'm going to have to deal with that for a couple of hours in the office, and I'm going to have to sit next to people, and they're going to have to deal with that too. I don't want to be that guy. I think that most people that, ride bicycle are doing it because it's a fun thing to do for exercise recreationally. They might want to get out of the house and they don't like running and I don't blame them. Running's lousy too. And there's something fun about running. So let me do this story here. They're they're talking about this from two different points on WKBW. And the two different points are here's from the driver's perspective. Here's from the bike rider's perspective. Okay. Let's uh, take a listen. Okay. I need to turn this on. Okay. All right. But Go Bike Buffalo's Kevin Heffernan says what you see from Niagara to Reese streets along Forest Avenue is only part of a survey, which so far has received a lot of positive feedback. He says the purpose of this is to demonstrate what a two-way bike lane could look like in this area. All right, so he's out there with the organization that likes bike lanes. And no surprise, the feedback that the bike lane organization gets is positive feedback. 
So from the biking community, they like the idea that they're carving extra space into the road and making things miserable for those that are driving cars. You know, if you want to make a right-hand turn, good luck with that because, you know, the bicycle that's in the lane to the right of you is going to be blowing past that stop sign or that red light, and you're probably going to be pulling right into their path. Not You don't want to hit them. They don't want to hit you. But they're, you know what? They're going to play that game and say it's your fault all the time. You know, they don't signal when they turn. There's a million problems with bikers, and they act like it's no big deal. Everything they do out there is just for their benefit. To narrow those lanes, remove that comfort with speeding is goal number one. To create biking space was kind of the bonus. And by doing all that, you actually make it safer for people walking and safer for drivers. He tells me the $50,000 project, which added these cones, paint, and traffic markers a few weeks ago, was all paid for with grant money. All right, so 50 grand they put into this to paint the roads. Sometimes I, I look at it and think, how do they come up with 50 grand for that job? It really wasn't that big of an intersection. It wasn't that much paint. Like, how special is this paint? Oh, we have this imported from Italy. Very special paint. And then they put up plastic tubes, and then they take basically screws, large big bolt screws, into the pavement, the ground of the road, asphalt or whatever it is there. Okay, so you're going to have to pay for the labor for someone to do that. And you're going to paint the ground and you bought plastic. How much does that run up? 50 grand. So if I were to do the job, if I were to go to Home Depot and I had to pick up 100 of these things and I had to pick up paint, I would anticipate to pay 250 to $300 for all of this stuff. Well, no, no, no. Okay, those cones are pretty high. $1,000 at the most. Where in the world do they come up with 50 grand for this man i'm in the wrong business i need to supply plastic cones with a large markup next thing you know government agencies are auditing me like this whole covid thing that's going on all right but after just a few weeks you'll now notice this every time we see a cone knocked over uh that's from a bad driver and that's what makes it especially frustrating that someone wasn't paying attention. According to Heffernan, between 2015 and 2019, 36 people were hit by cars in this area. One of them was a child who was hit and killed. So for him, this is upsetting because the goal for drivers should be simple. See them as their neighbors, not as their obstacles, um, not as their uh, reasons for being 25 seconds later to something. It's a problem the city of Lackawanna knows all too well. Uh, Going to be just 27 seconds later. Well, hey, the guy in the bicycle, you can stop at that red light like everyone else instead of blowing through it. You can be 27 seconds later, too. That's what I've noticed. And I understand that it could be dangerous for people on the road. I get that. We need to make sure we see each other. People are distracted when they drive. They're looking at their phones. They're putting on makeup. They're eating a hamburger. If you're lucky, if you're unlucky, they're trying to eat a burrito that's squirting all over their pants. And next thing you know, they're looking down and not at the road. Um... How about this? If, if you're someone that rides bike and you want to defend these things, tell me how great they are. Like I, I don't think I've ever actually met anyone that uses these lanes. Like They're always put in at great expense, mostly taxpayer expense. And then once in a while, I'll see people on them, but it's always like the same five people. And I don't know any of them. And I think that they're such a waste of money. And I think that they're so underused. And the whole idea of if you build it, they will come doesn't ever pan out for these things. Uh, 716-803-0930 is the number. Person texted in, uh, they need a motorcycle lane, and motorcycle riders are way more responsible than pedal bikers. A hundred percent that's true. I would sign off on that every day of the week. 
motorcycle drivers to me are living on the edge. They're the ones that are most likely to get hit by a vehicle. They're driving down the highway. If some cases they're going down the highway, they're moving with the flow of traffic in traffic. And I would be scared to death to ride a motorcycle today with all the distracted driving. That seems to be the worst. At least if you're a bicycle, you're off the side of the road. Maybe sometimes you're on a one-lane road or whatever, and you're blocking, and there's like a giant procession of vehicles behind you. you got to feel guilty for doing that if they had a conscious. But I don't think bike drivers do. And if you're pedal biking, you don't have a conscious. Uh, okay. One person texted in. Bicyclists on the ground road by the railroad overpass. I don't know what that means. Sorry. I, the text message there. Maybe you can try to spread that out a little bit. So sometimes the text messages come through and they don't make a lot of sense. All right. It does make me wonder, though. I I have tried public transportation in some ways, and it's appealing to me to think I could be hands off and someone takes me somewhere and I don't have to worry about it. This is, must be how my wife feels because I always drive. I have a rule. If I'm in the car, I am going to actually be behind the wheel every time. And wouldn't that be nice if I can just sit back, relax, and not have to worry about it? And I think that's some of the interesting thoughts of public transportation is that you don't have to You just hop on, you scan your card, it'll take you where you need to go. But sometimes they're not practical, and sometimes they're dangerous. I don't know what it's like in Buffalo, but here in uh, St. Louis, this is what you see on side of public transportation. Unpoliced, drug deals, violence, robberies, uh, people getting hurt. And people just stop using it. Right? They're like, I, I don't want to deal with this. And it's like anytime you go to any other city, there's always some sort of, you know, monorail or whatever it is to try to transport you. Certain places in the city, a lot of downtown areas have it. Chicago historically has done a pretty good job with it. New York historically has done a good job with it for the most part. I mean, you might be sitting next to a rat, but at least they got the policing down. It seems like they figure that sort of thing out. It does scare me. But it's not appealing enough to ride a bicycle to show up sweaty to work to know that I'm going to be blocking traffic and making things miserable for everyone else. I'm just going to hop in a car every time. But they're still going to spend, what, millions of dollars to try to put these into large cities, and it really won't make that much of a difference to begin with. Let's take a call. Walter is on line one. Walter, welcome to WBEN. Hello. Thank, thank you for taking my call. I, I was listening to you, and I'm listening to what you're saying about bicycles and cars. I don't mm -hmm. think most drivers know how to drive on a road with a shared bicyclist. The reason I say that, I have ridden across or around all the Great Lakes on my bicyclist. I went to the five borough uh, bicyclist in New York City, so I rode through all the five boroughs in New York City. With that in mind, I picked up a lot of ideas, and I ride, even though I'm older, I ride still 20 miles a day today. Wow. I go from Lewiston to Youngstown and back. It's easy it's on amazing. River Road. But what I find is people, cars, don't stop for stop signs. They, they, they call us the California stop. They, stop. they slow down, and they just cruise through. As a bicyclist, I come up to an intersection. They don't have signals, signal lights on. They slow down. Now, I'm supposed to come up to a place. Is he's going to cruise through like everybody does? Is he going to stop and let me through first? I have to make a choice at each intersection when a car comes about. So, so you're stopping, though, or are you judging to see if the other person stops I'm first? judging to see what's going on. I have to judge. Mm -hmm. If I stop, I have to stop. 
a lot of cars don't even stop. They slow down and just cruise through. What, you are supposed that. to stop, though, right? So are you sometimes not? If I, if I have to stop, I have to stop. Mm-hmm. And but, so forth. Yeah. But the law is you're stopping, right? You're supposed to obey traffic laws like a car would? That's what I understand, but no one does. The cars don't under, yeah. understand, and the cars don't stop, and the bikes will stop. No, right. Neither one. Neither one does. And the second one thing is when you, people drive trailers, uh, bicyclists, I have to go die, I go down River Road. When mm-hmm. I get passed by a car, usually they give me a normal, good safety uh, space. Nothing's mm-hmm. wrong. And people, sometimes people peep their horn. It's the worst thing you can do. I can hear a car coming half a mile away. When you're on a bike, there's no, no sound. You can hear the car coming. When they right. get right next to you, they beat the horn. It scares the living heck out of me. The so they, do you think they do that just to annoy you? They're basically trying to be annoying, or do you think they're doing it for safety reasons? Both reasons. Yeah. Both. I would say most car drivers are jerks, too, so they, they do it because they didn't like getting stuck behind you. Well, that's true, but they can go around me. I'm on. Yeah. A, I'm. I'm. I'm usually within a foot of the white line, mm-hmm. okay. so they can go around at any given time. But when gotcha. they go around, especially people with trailers, they pull right back in, thinking that they're in the driver's seat. I'll give them room, but they have a 30-foot trailer behind them. I got almost wiped out three or four times when I can touch the actual trailer going behind me, or going wow. past me. They're they're pulling in really quick. They don't mm. know how to drive with a trailer on. Commercial yeah. driver's license, the big tractor trailers, know what they're doing. Got it. Not okay. saying anything, but normal drivers don't know what they're doing when there's a bicyclist on the road. Walter, thank you very much for the call. 20 miles a day is amazing. So Walter's point as a bike rider is that we're all terrible. Uh, well, no, not so much the bikers. It's the cars that are terrible. We're the ones that are the problems because we don't stop. Uh, so he looks at it the same way I look at it the other way around. I think maybe there's this... Um, perception we have of each other right now jim is calling in on line two welcome to wben hello jim hi how are you good good so um you know i've been listening to your comments about bike lanes here for a little while and Mm. it doesn't seem like you really understand what the concepts of them are okay Um, so uh i'd be happy to learn absolutely so um you know number one buffalo is is still uh, the third poorest uh, city in the nation. Is that correct? What? Say that again. So Buffalo, you know, is the third poorest city in the nation. And there's there's a lot of people here in you Buffalo. said poorest? Poorest. Poorest. Like in oh, poorest. poorest. I thought you were talking like, okay, yeah, I see. Yeah. Okay. Okay. And, you know, there's a lot of people in Buffalo that can't afford a car. Mm-hmm. And, you know, unfortunately, uh, the public transportation here isn't very reliable. I've hired many people over the years that in order for them to get to work, they'd have to take two or three buses. And, and, you know, to have them have a bicycle, they're able to get to work on time. It's cheaper. Mm -hmm. Um, The bike lanes provide them safety. It it really is nothing but, you know, two lines of paint that a car should expect a cyclist to be in. Hmm. Um, it seems to be okay in that sense. Um, when it narrows the lanes, doesn't that make it harder for cars to travel through there? And I, I saw the video where those plastic cones were almost into the intersection, which makes it so hard to turn right in some of those areas. 
Absolutely. And, you know, I'm not going to defend those cones at all. Um, and, and I think that in a lot of instances, those cones perhaps were knocked down by an emergency vehicle, uh, maybe mm-hmm. a fire truck, you know, that couldn't get around oh, the corner yeah. there or something like that. Sure, absolutely. Um, yeah. But really, you know, you have to have access for people to get from one place to another, especially children, minors. You know, we want to have our young people working. Um, you know, we want to have people from the city uh, be able to earn a living, you know, while they're in school, uh, maybe earn some extra cash. You know, there's no more paper routes anymore. There's retirees mm. uh, doing paper routes. So, um, you know, I get it. Uh, just for the sake of time, Jim, I'm sorry we have to move on. But this is interesting. Jim's hitting on the economic standpoint. You want people to work, right? So you need to be able to give them a means to get to work, get that bike lane open and get people working again. I like that argument, actually. That's pretty good. All right. Just real quick before we go to break, I want to get to Veronica on line five. Veronica, go ahead. Hello. Yes, real quick. Yes, I am the president of the Forest Avenue Community Block Club. Um, we have a petition that we are sending to City Hall and to everybody who's involved in the bike lane. I am taking more signatures if anybody wants to visit my home, 151 Forest. It's posted on my door. So basically oh. what it seems that it's dangerous. Yeah, I, I can imagine if you live in that area, it has to be frustrating too. Veronica, thank you very much for the call. I was not expecting you to drop your home address on this powerful radio station. Uh, I'm sorry, we're going to have to take a break here. We're going to take a look at your news. Joining us after the break, I have scheduled a uh, Forbes senior energy contributor, Robert, uh, Robert Rapier, and he writes for Forbes. He talks about energy, and you've seen this on all the news sites. Energy prices are going through the roof. Here in Buffalo, it's going to be crazy this winter. It's even worse in Europe. I want him to explain some of what's going on and what we can expect with energy prices. Coming up after the break, I'm Ryan Recker filling in on WBEN. noticed a lot of news agencies reporting this pretty much all of them energy prices this winter across buffalo are going to be brutal what goes into high energy prices you may want to thank your lucky stars we're not europe right now and how did we get into this trouble and how long is it going to take to get out joining us now is a senior energy contributor for forbes robert rapier thank you for coming on to wben you bet thanks for having me you're great at this. Um, I've always enjoyed our conversations in the past, so thank you again. But, yeah, in Buffalo, it gets cold here. You realize that there's a lot of people that are going to be perhaps turning on their furnace as temperatures consistently dip to the 50s and 40s at night. And they're concerned because natural gas prices, where we're seeing other gas prices and energy prices continuing to rise. And they're saying this year is going to be particularly bad when it comes to the t- uh, when it comes to paying your bill. So I'm kind of hoping you could explain to us what energy prices and what contributes to high energy prices this year. Sure. So uh, let me lead off by saying that uh, we are back to record natural gas production right now. And the Appalachian Basin, in, you know, not too far from you, is producing nearly 40% of the country's gas. So what is going on? Well, the, the, the situation in Ukraine has driven natural gas prices very high because Ukraine and all of Europe gets a lot of natural gas from Russia, and that has been impacted. So that drove up Europe's natural gas prices, and you said, lucky we're not Europe. Well, we do have to compete with Europe, uh, both on 
uh, in the winter, we get some natural gas, uh, liquid natural gas imports up into the Northeast. And so now we have to compete with prices that are being set by Europe and being bid up by Europe. And then we have export terminals that are getting that gas out as well. And, uh, you know, one of the problems with the Appalachian Basin, you say, well, we've got record high production. Why should prices be so high? It can't always get to where it's needed. And that's also the case in Europe. You can't always get the gas to where it's needed. And that causes, uh, you know, localized prices sometimes to be very high when maybe in Texas they're, they're not nearly as high. Hmm. Are we exporting right now? And, and are, when you say Europe is competing with us, are they buying our gas and that's driving our prices up? That is helping drive our prices up, yes. They, they are. We have LNG export terminals now. Uh, there are a number being built. I think, um, I think there's one or more operating on the East Coast now. There's, there's a lot being exported from the Gulf Coast, which uh, doesn't really impact the Northeast because the, those markets aren't really connected, except to the extent that, you know, you'd ship LNG out of Texas and, and import it back into the, back into the Northeast. But, uh, uh, it's easier. It has been easier just to get, uh, you know, LNG exports from from Europe, from Asia, from uh, different places. But, you know, the the Russian gas situation is has really driven up prices all over the all over the world, and that is impacting uh, the Northeast disproportionately. Wow. So, so this is going to be perhaps a long term problem. And I didn't realize we were exporting to that level, and that's what's contributing to some of the prices. I also heard that. For Europe's sake, they said, okay, we're done buying gas from Russia. And then China said they'd step in and, hey, we'll help you out. But essentially, China's getting it from Russia, so it's almost like they're playing middleman. Is Europe going to get some relief anytime soon? Is that going to help us with prices? They're probably not going to get relief soon. Um, you know, the, the over uh, over time, there will be some demand impact. But uh, natural gas demand is, is uh, you know, pretty inelastic. You know, people need that gas in the winter for heating. And you, they may turn their thermostats down a little bit in the winter to try to save a, a bit. And that'll that'll provide a little relief. But you can't dis you can't replace the massive amounts that were coming in from Europe. And one of the ways they're trying to replace that is the U.S. is trying to put as much into Europe as we can. And yes, we've been import we've been exporting LNG for several years now, and and the growth. In fact, we are the fastest growing LNG exporting country in the world, and that's been that way now for several years. Let's um, look at the crisis in Europe because I keep seeing people post photographs of their bill. It'll go from you know, I, it might say 250, and then it'll show your expected bill next month will be $1,200 or something crazy like that. They are seeing unbelievable spikes in the cost of their energy right now. Is that going to be a long-term thing for them, and what's that going to do, I guess, for the uh, the economy? Well, you know, longer term, that'll settle down. Longer term, um they're going to do other things. I mean, Germany even is saying, okay, our nuclear plants that we're going to shut down, maybe let's not be so quick to shut those down. And other countries are looking at building nuclear plants. So uh, they're trying to uh, disconnect themselves from the dependence that they have on Russia right now. Uh, U.S., as the U.S. continues to ramp up, if we keep producing more natural gas, we'll be able to alleviate them somewhat. They're, they're really going to be counting on us this winter to try to help alleviate that. But at the same time, that's going to drive our prices up here. Uh, we can't, you know, we can't supply what Russia uh, uh, has has cut off or what they've cut themselves off from Russia. And, and you know, the, the thing that will try to bring supply and demand together is just uh, higher prices. 
Let me bring up this comparison because I, th- I think it would work. When we're talking about the lack of automobile vehicles right now, it's a, they talk about the chip shortage because supply chain issues, resources, where it's coming from in the world, and it's really made it difficult to keep up with demand of these very sophisticated computer chips. So the United States says we need to invest in trying to get more chip manufacturers over here. So we're going to put government money into this. We're going to start building plants. But it takes a few years to get these plants up and running. But they understand in the future this will put us in a better spot. I want to translate that to the Keystone Pipeline. Can't we look at the energy that could be coming through that in a few years, the energy issues we're having today, and say, using that same logic, we better get back to constructing that pipe because we know we're going to have problems down the line. Just like the chip shortage, we got to get back to getting more energy into our country. Right, and I would say I agree with that. I've made that argument. And to opponents of the pipeline, I say this. Look, uh, build a pipeline and then work to ensure that you don't need it. And if that's the case, if you work to ensure that the, the demand isn't there, then the company, uh, you know, TC Energy, formerly TransCanada, who wanted to build that pipeline, they're taking the financial risk there. And if the demand is not there, they're the ones that are going to take the loss. But it, the inverse is if you don't build it and the demand is there, then consumers are going to take the loss because gas prices, oil prices are going to be very high. They're going to be higher than they would have been if we were getting that oil coming down from Canada. I mean, there's, there's uh, you know, another six or 800,000 barrels a day that were going to come down that pipeline. That's about what we cut off from, from Russia. Um, that could have replaced, uh, you know, the, the oil that we were getting in from Russia. And so that, that definitely, it's not what's causing the problem right now. And I always empathize, empathize that to people, emphasize that to people. It's not causing the problem now that we're seeing with spiking oil prices, but it will lead to a similar problem down the road. Looking at it uh, from a grander scheme, and of course, Buffalo being so close to Canada, Canada's having their issues as well. Uh, are we better off than them right now, or are they better suited to continue to be self-sustainable uh, with their own energy? So eastern Canada is in about the same situation uh, that uh, eastern, the northeastern U.S. is in. Um, similar markets, similar dynamics. Canada does produce a lot of gas, but it's mostly over in uh, western Canada. And so that is consumed there. It's used up on the, on the west coast of Canada. So Canada is going to see the same thing. And I was in Canada last week. You know, they're also, they, they've also had soaring gasoline prices. That's not something that's been specific to the U.S. That's been all over the world. Everybody has been dealing with soaring uh, gasoline prices. I, in fact, I've got a friend in Uganda, and he told me, hey, our gas prices are up 50% uh, since, since last year. And I said, well, who do you blame for that? And he said, our president. I said, okay, so there you have it. The Ugandan president is responsible for for spiking gas prices. You mentioned Germany and their nuclear plants. Do you think here in the United States we could start a strategy to reevaluate? Because there's a lot of active plants in the United States, but they kind of there was this whole I don't want to call it a smear campaign, but people got real uneasy of having these plants, so they really didn't they they moved away from it. But the way the technology has changed and moved on, do you think that in the United States we could go back to building nuclear reactors again and then using that as an energy source? Yes, and, and in fact, that is happening. The, the uh, Department of Energy has allocated a lot of money 
to uh, ramping up nuclear plants in the U.S., to next-generation plants, and to making that happen. Look, I, I understand why nobody wants a new nuclear plant. You cannot have a Chernobyl or Fukushima incident every 20 years in the world and think people are going to be okay with nuclear power. So you have to have these advanced designs, and, and these advanced designs are, exist now, where they're putting the reactors underground, where they're putting the, uh, the fuel inside pellets so that they've got their own containment system. Uh, the, the, the designs that they have now are such that an operator should be able to walk away from the plant and it will shut down in a safe state if there's an incident. Now, neither uh, Chernobyl nor Fukushima were designs like that. They were not fail-safe designs. And I choose those words carefully. You can't say fail-proof because there are all kinds of things that could happen that could cause your plant to shut down. You have to have fail-safe designs. And the, the classic example I always use is a fuse. If you have an electrical fuse, it protects against surging currents by melting and then stopping the, sur the flow of current. It doesn't prevent the surge coming to the fuse, but then it shuts down in a safe state. And that's what we have to have with nuclear power, but then we have to get that message out to people and uh, educate the public. That, look, these are not like the designs that you know, happened over in, in Chernobyl. This, this cannot happen, and you have to be able to assure people there is no possibility that this could happen. Robert Rapier, he's talking energy prices and some of the different issues that we're facing. I was looking at one of your most recent articles with Forbes, and you were talking about nuclear waste, because that's still an issue. I know there's a lot of places around the United States that EPA is still surveying, and they want to be able to find ways to extract waste that was not properly disposed of. So the United States is still trying to deal with that sort of thing. So in the future, uh, is this going to be a really big deal? Are we going to try to have a, are we going to have a day of reckoning one day of all this waste we've dumped around the United States? Well, yes. I mean, we, we do have to find a repository that is generally acceptable to the public. And, you know, it's possible to do. I, I tell people all the time, look, the reason the, the center of the Earth is still molten and hasn't cooled off by now is because it's very radioactive. So there, there's a lot of radioactivity in the Earth. You can put that down in the Earth, and it will be safe. I mean, there, uh, Finland has just built a facility, and they're about to start storing their nuclear waste uh, underground in tunnels. And they've got it, they've got it insulated, isolated from all the water and it's supposed to uh, be able to hold that waste for uh, you know hundreds of years, and that's what we need uh, in the U.S. We've we've toyed around with Yucca Mountain and different places. We have to have a repository of that nuclear waste. And longer term, we need to be able to recycle that waste, which is what they do in uh, countries like France. They actually take the used waste and they reprocess it, and they can reduce the volume by about 85%, and therefore you have a lot less to dispose of. And that needs to be the long term. You know, uh, not getting political, but I saw this headline. It said, no, gas prices don't always go down before elections. But from what I understand, the price per barrel has been going down. Can we expect some breaks in the gas pump in the sometime right. in the near future? So I, I, I tell people this. Gas prices don't always go down before elections, but they almost always go down in the fall. And elections are in the fall. So that's why you see gas prices going down. But even in non-election years, they're generally going down because we're switching over to winter gasoline blends. Those are cheaper to produce, and they're more abundant because butane goes in those, and we have a lot of butane. So you have seen oil prices tick down substantially. Gasoline prices have also, you know, we're well off the peaks of where we were in the summer. And we should see that continue to, to tick down at least through the winter. Um, you know, barring hurricane knocking out a lot of production in the, in the Gulf Coast, 
Um, that has happened before. That's that's one time we didn't, you know, when Hurricane Katrina happened, we didn't see gas prices going down in the fall. But uh, most of the time it happens. Uh, you can expect it to continue this year. We should see gasoline prices continue to tick down. But you're going to see heating oil prices and, and natural gas prices continue to be very high. Yeah, from what I understand, diesel prices are still high, which also contributes into transporting all the goods that we use. So why would other oil prices go down, but diesel would still stay high? So one of the problems, with some of the oil that we were getting from Russia, the, the majority of it was finished products. And when we cut that off in uh, February of this year, we cut off a lot of our diesel imports. And so the refineries had to scramble to make that up, and they can't make it all up. So they, they shift production as much as they can to diesel, but then that takes away from gasoline, and that also contributed to the summer price spike. You know, they're trying to make as much diesel as they can, but it's still not enough. So, you know, we're importing diesel and we're trying to make that up, but we've had a diesel shortage since, the, since we cut off the Russian imports. That's, that's been a major problem since then. Do other countries talk about this as much as we do? i, I got to assume Europe does, but when you were in Canada, was this such a big topic? Uh, they did talk about it. You know, it's, it's funny because I, I lived in Europe. I lived in the Netherlands in 2008 when, when uh, oil prices hit nearly $150 a barrel. And their gasoline prices there got up to, at the time, about $10 a gallon. And the, the, the cars were still on the, on the roads. You know, there were, there were people everywhere. Um, they, they complained, but they're a little bit more, uh, you know, they were used to higher prices. And, and they went from $4 to $10. And, uh, yes, it hurts, but I think they have a better understanding there. They, they, I think they understand that politicians don't, aren't pulling the levers here. Oil companies aren't even pulling the levers. This is, this is the market bidding these prices up and down. And that's why you see oil company profits rise up and down, because they are at the mercy of these markets. Let's um, go back a few years I, without actually getting into the history of it. But there was that time during the Trump administration where the price per barrel was in the negative. It was insane, the manipulation that was going on in the markets. And it, we're looking at that and saying, wow, uh, top off the tanks. Our strategic reserve is at, what, a 50-year low or something along those lines? What kind of problems are we going to run into with such a low reserve? So the, the issue here is one of insurance. So the Strategic Petroleum Reserve was created as an insurance policy against something like happened with the uh, OPEC embargo of 1973. If we got completely cut off from oil, it's there to be able to see us through that emergency period. And by draining the reserve to the, you know, the, it, we're at the lowest level since the 80s right now, and it's being used in a political way right now. We, we didn't, you know, high gas prices are a political emergency, but they're not a real supply emergency. And that's what we've had. We've had high gas prices and a, an attempt to mitigate those by draining the reserve. Now, this is the highest draw on the reserve we've ever seen. And what's, what's going to happen is if we don't have a, a need for that reserve. If we don't have an, an emergency you know, energy shortage, we'll probably get away with it. But if something happened, if Saudi Arabia got attacked and, and suddenly their oil came off the market and we needed that reserve, it's going to look like one of the dumbest energy policy moves in American history. So that's the risk that we're taking. I mean, they're, they're, they're gambling that we won't need that reserve and so they've, they've dropped it by, you know, like 30, 35 percent or so over the last year. And, uh, you know, it's, it's just a risk. It's a risk that, yeah. you know, we've never had to call on it for that level before. So you look back and say, right. well, we've never needed it like that before. So we probably won't need it. But it's a risk.
it's a balancing act. You're walking a tightrope. A Forbes senior energy contributor, Robert Rapier. You can look up his work. If you go to Forbes, look up energy, or you can search his name, Robert Rapier, R-A-P-I-E-R. Thank you for coming on to WBEN. I appreciate it. You bet. Anytime. We are moving to a cashless society. We're going to talk about that after the break. A look at your news as well. I'm Ryan Recker filling in on WBEN.